Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Joshua Sparrow, Executive Director of the Brazelton Touchpoint Center. We're here today to honor the life of work of Dr. T. Barry Brazelton and to work together to make the dreams we shared with him for all children and all families to come true. One of Barry's first books was entitled To Listen to a Child, and his last one so far is a memoir called Learning to Listen, which is the inspiration for this webinar and podcast series. Eight days before his death, at about this time a year ago, and just a few months shy of his 100th birthday, Barry said that today's family's concerns are uh, not the same as when he was in practice. Today, he said, parents are worried about social media, digital technology, guns in schools, violence in the world, and the polarized politics in which it has become harder and harder to really listen to each other. Yet we'd like to think that there are answers today, to today's challenges in what every baby knows. Barry's studies of newborn behavior revealed previously unrecognized competencies in brand new babies because he stopped to listen closely and observe carefully. Barry's research with colleagues on the earliest infant parent interactions revealed the microsecond to microsecond nonverbal cues that are the foundation of all human communication throughout the lifespan. We hope that with this Learning to Listen webinar and podcast series, we can listen to what infants, toddlers, and young children can teach us about how they listen and learn so that we can all do our part to help our world learn to listen. Today, we will be listening to and learning with Professor Kathy Hirsch-Pasek more in a moment about Professor Hirsch-Pasek. The Brazelton Touchpoint Center Learning to Listen webinar and podcast series will be available to you on the braseltontouchpoints.org website and will also include webinars and podcasts by June Laley and Alicia Lieberman. Before turning to today's featured presenter, Professor Catherine Hirsch-Pasek, I want to thank our Learning to Listen webinar series sponsors without whom we would not be together with you today. The Burke Foundation, First Five Santa Clara County, Mitchell Gold and Bob Williams Home Fershenings, and Hachette Books. I'd also like to thank our Brazelton Touchpoint Center staff, Kayla Savelli, Michael Accardi, and Susanna Kasich for all of their efforts to make this happen and bring us all together. And also to thank Leanna Green and her staff and crew at Santa Monica Studios. Finally, I want to thank Barry Brazelton for the power of his work, his inspiration, and his enduring legacy. So now let me just tell you a little bit about Catherine Hirsch-Pasek. She is the Stanley and Deborah Lefkowitz Faculty Fellow in the Department of Psychology at Temple University and a Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution. Her research examines the development of early language and literacy, as well as the role of play in learning. With her long-term collaborator, Roberta Glinkoff, she is author of 14 books and hundreds of publications and a fellow of the Cognitive Science Society. She is recipient of almost all of the most prestigious awards in her field, or maybe all of that at this point. But Kathy says her most important accomplishments are being mother of three sons and grandmother of two. Her most recent book, Becoming Brilliant, What the Science Tells Us About Raising Successful Children, was released in 2016 and was on the New York Times bestseller list in education, in education and parenting. Today, Kathy will be talking about how to ensure strong reading skills by third grade by building strong language skills in early childhood. And she will share six principles of language learning that she's distilled from the past 30 years of research that can help build a strong foundation for language learning and for later reading success. 
at the heart of these principles are the ways that babies listen to us and the ways that we listen to and respond to them even before their first words. Thank you so much, Kathy, for joining us today. It is such a pleasure, Josh, and thank you so much for inviting me. What an honor it is to even be associated with touch points when I was so inspired by your work and by Dr. Brazelton's for my entire career. So thank you. So um, today I want to, I hope I'm sharing my screen now, and I'm going to uh, show you a little bit of the work that's going on in listening with little babies. So have we shared the screen at this point? Is everybody with us? Well, then let's give it a whirl. Kathy, I'm not seeing your screen. Um, if you go to the bottom and you yeah. click on share. I did do that. And then it'll bring you to your desktop and then you click on the, uh, the document, the PowerPoint that would be open on your desktop. Well, sadly I did that. And while it worked when we tested it, it is <laughs> not working now. <laughs> So I don't know how to make that happen again. Um, if you have an idea, I'll certainly try it. One minute for technical difficulties here. It says to start again. So it looks like, um the the audience can see your video my oh can see me but can't see the slides is that where we're at let me try it one more time i'm going to hit the share button and if it doesn't work then i'm just going to talk to you and we're going to make it work without the slides so let's see if we can make it happen do we get it that time it. yeah i think we've got it now all righty sounds good now, I am seeing actually um, your wonderful desktop too. There we go. All right, did that Yay. work? All right. If you just try long enough, technology comes through for you. And that's one of the things we're actually gonna talk about today. So let's move on and, and give it a whirl. Um, the National Assessment of Educational Progress reports that more than 80% of third graders from underserved families are not going to be reading at third grade in third grade. So if we look to the future for many of us who work with young children, we already are starting to see inklings that we have a problem and that at least half of the school achievement gap between rich and poor kids is starting well before kindergarten. Now equipped with these facts, we have 42 states across the United States that have started campaigns to reverse this trend. And their solution is often more assessment, more assessment, and more assessment. More reading intervention by teaching more letter sound correspondence, important, and drilling vocabulary, also important, but not recognizing that all this may start very early on with the way we listen with and respond to our children. So yes, it's important to add more preschools, but what we may need to do is even start earlier with young children and early, early language development. 
In fact, if we were to take that reading that we're seeing in third grade as a start, we would see that there are many strands woven into the kind of skills that we want our children to have as they grow older. Now in reading, that includes word recognition. That's what you hear everything about. But what you don't hear as much about is language comprehension. And it turns out that a review of 31 well-cited interventions reveal that children in school are only learning about 25% of the taught words that they get. Another big analysis, which is an analysis of all the studies that are out there, says that we're only getting a narrow hit. And the ones that are targeting specific vocabulary lists generally find that children simply aren't learning them. So in my work, I have wondered how to make this go forward. All right, let's see if we can make that happen again. Boy, the, this has really given us, the tech has really given us problems today. So the data show us that what's going on later on in life is that both direct and indirect relationships exist between language and the kind of outcomes that we hope to see in our children so much later. And our new analysis that used the broad NICHD childcare study suggested that the language that our children have at school entry is the single best predictor of what our children are gonna look like when they're in school, in reading, in math, in their social skills, in attention and memory, all the way through school, at least through third and fifth grade. And recent work in the neuroscience of how you learn and how you read shows us that if you could look at the brain and map this out, and in fact, my colleague Stan DeHane from Paris has done that, suggests that even reading requires that it taps into a very strong language base, a very strong listening base, if you will, in order to have the achievements we're looking for later on in life. Now, mountains of behavioral data suggest that children from under-resourced environments are not getting as much in the way of the language input they need as their more privileged peers. And there are many articles that have come out in the last year suggesting, well, maybe these kids just hear more overheard speech. Maybe it's just that they're getting more peer-to-peer -peer language. But when you look closely at the quality of the input, I think the old Hart and Risley data that we'll talk about in just a little bit, a little bit more, well, it still stands up. It turns out that our children are being disadvantaged very early on if they're not getting the high quality listening input and responding input that they need. So where do we go from here? Does it have any significance what they hear in the first three years of life? The answer to that question is absolutely, and Hart and Risley showed us that. They talk about what they call the 30 million word gap. Now, many people have complained about whether that study with only 42 children is something we should rely on 
for a lot of our policy. But let's look closely at the significance of some children early on hearing many more words and having much more in conversation than other words. Well, it turns out that by age three, the children in their most privileged group was hearing about 1,116 words that they had in their vocabulary. And the children from what they called, and I hate this term, the welfare group only had 525 words in their vocabulary. Think about that. By age three, we were already seeing the beginnings of that gap that we were going to feel in reading so many years later. And that gap that we were gonna see in reading so many years later was gonna have an impact for those children all the way through school. In fact, the vocabulary that our young children have at age three actually predicts their vocabulary scores when they are nine and 10 years of age. And by second grade, we note that children from more, from more privileged environments have 6,000 root words, those words like heal in health or teach in teacher. Whereas children from under-resourced environments have only 4,000 and are two grades behind. That's already at grade two. So today, I wanna to talk about how to shift the emphasis from the kinds of things we normally think about, schooling and math and reading, to what we can do to create high quality language environments for young children that will not only serve them well as young children, but also prepare them best for the future learning that they're going to have in school and beyond. And let me suggest that this isn't just wonderful for the children, it's also wonderful for us as parents. Because when our children have richer language scores, they can speak with us about what they're thinking, about what they're feeling. And as long as we're good listeners and we have those conversations with our children, our children will grow. In today's talk, I want to do a talk in two parts. First, I want to emphasize six evidence-based principles of language learning that support reading and beyond. And secondly, I want to talk to you about the implications of these six principles and the kind of outreach that I think we can do as parents, as pediatricians, as policymakers, and as educators broadly read. The talk then starts with my boldly declaring six evidence-based principles of language that will help us what I call languageize the environments for young children. In the same way that we think of simonizing a car, maybe we can languageize the world that we live in. And when I say I'm being bold here, I really am. I'm taking thousands and thousands of scientific papers and I'm gonna try to distill them into one page, into six principles that I think each of us can use in our offices, in our policy, and in our education. Here they are, six principles. One, 
children learn what they hear most. Now, oftentimes when I give a talk like this, I get, duh, of course that's true. If children hear a lot of swear words, it's likely they're gonna use a lot of swear words. But it's not really a duh, because some of us tend to talk much less with children and some talk a little bit more. And it turns out that they need to have some quantity on which to hear the language they're going to use. So I'll try to play that out in a minute. Number two, children learn the words for things and events that interest them. Notice what I said, them, not us. What we tend to do when we take our children to museums is we go through the museum and we look at what interests us, not what has caught the eye often of our children. Number three, this is the one I'll spend the most time on because it's most relevant to the kind of listening series that we're doing with touch points. Interactive and responsive environments build language learning. I'll call this the conversational duet because you can't do it alone. Four, children learn best when it's meaningful. Well, that means it has to have meaning for young children. That means something not only that they're interested in, but that they get. Number five, they need to hear full sentences, not just lists of words, because they learn vocabulary and words in conversations. And I want to share with you that vocabulary and the fuller sentences or grammar that they use, they work together. And I'll give you the evidence for that. Six principles, one page a kind of checklist that all of us can use to help languageize the environments of young children. Let's start with number one. The evidence? Well, I showed you a little bit with the Hart and Risley data, that 30 million word gap, which has been far from debunked, despite what you're hearing in some of the news. Next, amount of speech is important because, well, it's hard to believe, but our children, even as babies, as nine-month-old infants, they are statistical learners. They pick up the patterns in speech. If I say you probably heard digalu three times. And so do your kids. They're picking up the statistics at every turn and then using them in the language that they're learning. And amount of speech is important for speed of processing. Well, let's go to that famous 1996 study by Safran Aslan in Newport. Yes, they did the Bigadulas. Nine-month-old babies, only two minutes. And the babies could tell the patterns that they heard most from the patterns that they didn't hear. Oh, you're probably asking at this point, how in the world would you know? And those of us who study babies have figured out a number of different methods that we use. Sometimes it's where they look. Sometimes it's how fast they suck on a pacifier that gives us that information. Turns out that the amount also matters because it increases our processing speed. This is work by Anne Fernald at Stanford University and her colleague Anna Weisleder. Beautiful work where all you do is ask whether a child is looking to the right or the left when the baby hears in your best infant-directed speech, where's the doggy? Where's the dog? Now it turns out 
that 18 month olds are slower to look at the right place and they're more likely to get it wrong than their older 24 month old selves. So knowing that we can take both measures on where did they look and how fast did they look in order to get some indication. Ah, but look at the clever study that they did. What they did is they looked at 18-month-olds who got more speech and those 18-month-olds who got less speech. And then they wanted to look at 24 months of age and to see which of those children got there faster. That would be the higher line. And also look at the slope here, got there faster and got it more correct. These were the 18-month-olds who heard more language at 18 months and had more conversations. These are the 18-month-olds, now 24-month-olds, who heard less speech when they were 18 months. Wow, look at that difference in how much they got correct and on how fast they learned. That means that the input really does matter. And you know that. Because if you've ever been to a place where they speak a foreign language, I was just in France, and I took a lot of years of French, and I'm sad to say that as the French sped by my ear, I was still on the first or second word when they had finished their sentences. And that's the same thing that a baby experiences. Let's go to principle number two. Children learn words for events and for things that interest them. One of my colleagues, Lois Bloom, called that the principle of relevance. And babies are more likely to attach labels to interesting, not boring objects as well. We actually play this game in the lab by going to a store like Bed Bath & Beyond and buying kitchen gadgets, many of which you cannot figure out the name for. And then you label either the interesting thing or the boring thing and you see, do the babies learn those boring things like bottle openers? Or are they more likely to learn the really interesting things that if you shake them, they do something? You can bet they're more likely to learn the interesting things. It turns out that when babies and you are looking at the same thing and you look into where the baby's looking, babies are more likely to learn the word. But if you're expecting the babies to look where you're looking, not so good. In fact, one of my colleagues did a very simple experiment. She said, look at the things that interest your baby and comment on them. Would you believe that the babies who had parents who just looked at what they were looking at and commented on it had much larger vocabularies than the kids who did not? In the classroom, reading books that have relevance to kids also makes a difference. Some of you out there may be old enough to remember the old Dick and Jane books. But if you think real hard, those Dick and Jane books, well, those kids lived in a suburb. Every one of them had a station wagon, a dog named Spot. They were white kids in individual houses, and they didn't really have any bearing on city kids who lived in row homes. So the city kids didn't learn so well from those examples. Let's go to principle three. This is the one I really want to spend a little time on. Interactive and responsive environments are even more important than the amount you talk. What we don't need is to have a lot of verbal clutter 
What we do need is to have good conversations where we listen to our children. That means talking with, not talking at, expanding on what a child says and does, noticing what they find interesting, using a label that goes with what they're looking at, and asking questions that we call open-ended questions so that it continues the conversation rather than being what I sometimes call a conversation closer. But let me give you a real example. This is an example from a 10-week-old baby. And every grandparent has to get their grandchild in somewhere. So this is my grand granddaughter when she was just 10 weeks of age. And let's hope the video works. Oh. 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 Now it's kind of a beautiful example. So I want to dwell on it for a moment. Did you ever think you could have a conversation with a 10 week old baby? Well, there it was. But I also wanted to point out how great the mom was at listening. That mother, also my daughter-in-law, she was wonderful at the end and let Ellie have space so that Ellie could actually take her time in giving her next response. And she did not respond until after Ellie made her move. What a beautiful example of an early conversation. Now it turns out that Hart and Risley not only talked about the importance of amount, but they also talked about the quality of that amount and they called it either giving encouragements, praise and affirmation, or what they called discouragements where you had prohibitions or negative evaluations. Listen to yourself sometime, and I am guilty as well. Sometimes when I'm on the phone and a four-year-old and a two-year-old are running around, oh, please, just go find something else to do. I did a conversation closer. And if instead you sound schizophrenic on that phone and you're talking to the child and say, oh, yeah, what is that, as many of us do, and then saying, oh my gosh, you really got a divorce, Mary? We need to, oh yes, that's a beautiful block. Tell me what happened. When you sound like that, you're doing encouragements and doing conversation openers, not discouragements and conversation closers. We also looked at the quality of what we call the foundation for communication during those early parent-child interactions. Now it turns out that in the NICHD study of early childcare and child development, we were able to look longitudinally at young children and to see how they grew up. So we had 60 kids from under-resourced environments and that's when they were two years of age and we chose 20 of them who at age three were going to get high language scores on a standardized test 20 who were going to get middling language scores and 20 who were going to have struggling language scores. And then what we could do is go backwards in time to see what were they like when they were two. If we started when they were three, could we see what was going on in the interactions with their parents, in this case moms, 
at age two and predict back to what they were going to look like when they were three. There's the mother-child interaction. And we were going to look at quality by looking at, did that mom use any of the nonverbal gestures? Did that mom drop in words? Did that mom use the kind of fluid and connected exchanges you just saw with baby Ellie? Did that mom know what to do when they picked up a book or when they had tea time? Did she play the game and pick up the tea? And how many words did mom use at age two? And could what she did at age two be used to predict what was gonna happen with those three-year-olds. Well, let's look and see what happened. Now we have quality and we have quantity. The answer is, if you look at quality alone, the back and forth that was going on, the dropping in words and symbols in the conversation, it could predict 16% of what you were gonna look like a year later. And if I look at that overlap in quantity and quality, I pick up another 10%. Think about it. I could predict 26% of what you looked like at age three by the kinds of interactions that you had at age two, by whether you languageized the environment. Now, I want to make a statement here that notice that what we saw couldn't be about just poverty, because all the kids in the sample were from low-income, under-resourced environments. Yet some parents languageized the environment and some parents didn't languageize their environment. And what they did at age two mattered at age three. So you're asking now, well, I mean, didn't quantity do anything uniquely? And here's the answer. It added another 1%. That told me that what was most important was how we listened, was how we interacted, was how we had conversations. And it seemed to me that instead of talking about filling the gap, which is the language we normally use when we talk about under-resourced families, that maybe just maybe it was time to talk about building a foundation. And that the foundation comes from listening and conversations. And that is the foundation that's going to help our children all the way through school and beyond. Same thing is true if we look a kid outcome all the way up to age four and a half, looking at four and a half year olds and three year olds and two year olds and one year olds. What was one of the best predictors? Well, it turned out it was maternal sensitivity. It's whether the moms were sensitive to what their kids were looking at and responsive to that. They were listening in even to the nonverbal conversation. And the same is true in schools. If you're looking for a high quality school, Look for a place where the caregivers are super sensitive. The group on the top here is the really sensitive moms at every age and the sensitive caregivers at every age. And those are the ones who had higher reading scores, higher academic scores, and higher social scores when we measured them at each age. Ah, you say, well, this is the age of video chats. I mean, the way I talk to my grandkids is through video chats. Am I doing something where I'm harming the kids? Because that's like looking at TV, that's cutting off conversation, or is it? And so what we did with 24 to 30 month olds is we had a video chat training, a live interaction training, 
or we had a television training, which was the same thing. It was just using the video from another kid. This is Sarah Roseberry, who you see here, and she did the study for her dissertation. And we wanted to know, was video chat more like watching television or was it more like having a live conversation? And here you see the results of that study. It turns out that video chat was more like live than it was like television. In fact, it turns out that because you have the back and forth, the fluid and responsive conversations, the same kinds of things that we're having in this web, in this webinar today, you feel like I'm kind of in the room with you. Ah, but there's another case we could study. What happens with the greatest natural experiment of our time? The fact that we are walking around every day with cell phones in our pocket. If I were to ask for a poll right now of how many of you have a smartphone, I bet all of you out there would be raising your hand. And yet we carry it around even with young children. I've gone through Central Park in New York and I see parents on their phone not paying attention to what their children are looking at. And so we did an experiment in the lab. We taught the same two words that the children learned in the live condition and in our video chat condition. But now we interrupted one of those words with a cell phone call. And we wanted to see what would happen. Now, please note that even in the interrupted condition, here with word one or here with word two, we had 30 seconds on interruption and another 30 seconds. So the kids got the same amount of time as they got in the uninterrupted case. Did they learn the word when it was interrupted? Did they learn both words? And for every parent, they got an interrupted and an uninterrupted condition. What happened? I thought maybe you should see this for yourself because the video says more than I could ever say. Whoops, didn't want to work that time. We're going to try one more time. Yes, look, I want to show you something. Look, look what I'm doing to this baby. I'm blicking this baby. What am I doing? Blicking. What am I doing with this baby? Blicking baby. You were, oh. hello? It's going great. This, this one new baggies. I had a little bit of coffee, but I, you could always use more. <laughs> Need I say? Oh, for yes. sure. A good mom was kind of ignoring the child when she wanted to be re-engaged, and in fact, in the interrupted condition, the children's the children learn nothing, and in the uninterrupted, as you can see here, they learn the words just fine. This is work by Jessa Reed. Now, there's absolutely beautiful work that was featured also on the recent uh, Diane Sawyer 2020, and you could see it for yourself. When we pick up that phone and we look at that phone, it's kind of like a still face experiment. We stop all of our emotional engagement with our children, and our children notice. And in the case of what went on with 2020, it was actually quite funny. The one kid saw his mom wasn't engaging, so he hightailed it for the door. And he said, I have no reason to stay here. You're not paying any attention to me. Moving on, then new data continues to flow in on the importance of this back and forth, contingent conversation, listening to one another. The language experience in the second year of life has 
real implications for what's going to happen many, many years later in school in later childhood. Jill Gerkinson uh, or Gerkson. Um, a year in words, the dynamics and consequences of language experiences in an intervention classroom. Language from peers, language from teachers matters. We need to increase the amount of language our children and the quality of the language our children hear to help their vocabulary size grow. And maybe more importantly, some beautiful new data by Rachel Romero in 2018 shows that these kinds of interactions that we've been talking about are also important for brain connectivity and for brain growth itself. And it turns out that this is true even in four to six year olds. So let's go to number four. I'm gonna buzz through the rest because I wanted to spend most time in this webinar on number three. Children learn best in meaningful context. Don't take away the blocks. They're talking about cool things like under, around, in, through, when they're putting the red block on top of the blue block. When they learn that it's spatial terms, that's important even for math learning. When they're learning shapes like triangles, and guess what? They don't even learn these as well when you have electronic toys instead of having the real deal. Number five, they need to hear richer language structures if they're going to master real language development. And there's evidence here too. The amount and diversity of the stimulation that they hear fosters rich outcomes. This is true, by the way, whether you're learning one language or two, the principles of language learning are quite the same. And number six, vocabulary and grammar kind of go together. The reason that children learn vocabulary in rich environments is because the rich language environments are the way we naturally learn vocabulary. As you remember from your SATs, you probably don't remember that word ubiquitous or syzygy because you just learned them when you had to memorize them for the SAT test. Evidence, vocabulary and grammar are reciprocal. Words and grammar develop in synchrony across the first years of life. And by the way, do so within each language that you happen to be learning. This is a back and forth relationship. There they are, six principles, one page, helping you languageize your environment. So of course the question is, what can I do with that once I have six principles that are based on thousands of papers in the literature? Well, in a beautiful piece called How Do Families Matter that was put out by the Foundation of Child Development in New York in 2009, they talked about the story of a child and an eggplant. And the story basically goes like this. The child sees this cool thing in a grocery store and you're rolling your carriage along and says, what's that? And the mother looks at it and goes, you won't like it, and moves on. Mother too says, oh, that's an eggplant. It's a kind of vegetable, and she moves on too. And then there's the excessive mother three. Oh, that's an eggplant, isn't it cool? It's purple. Let's weigh the eggplant. Wow, do you think we could take it home and make a recipe? Notice how she continued that conversation. 
And for many of us in the field, the question is, is there any way to help mom one become mom three? Because if mom one can use some of the principles of mom three, then she'll have richer language and richer language with the child, which will help grow not only their language, but everything she'll need to be successful in later school. Well, how do you change those trajectories? I'm gonna say it's possible because language strategies are learnable and they are malleable. And I'm gonna give you three examples. What can happen at home with the family level? What can happen in the classroom level? And what we can do in the community? And then I'll close for questions. The Duet Project was our way of using these principles. As you can see, I had amazing people join me on this. It was community-based participatory research where we're working with a group called the Maternity Care Coalition, which turned out to be very important because there are people who have worked in the community for a long, long time and are really well respected and do home visiting there. The mission was to strengthen the developing communication foundation to enhance and predict language learning and school readiness outcomes. We were gonna do that by fostering awareness. Some people don't even know about the Ellie conversations, right? So if we can help people learn that you can have conversations with 10-week-olds, we're already ahead of the game. To empower caregivers, to increase the quality of the language in and out, and to improve outcomes. And this is just an example of what we had of animated tapes. We'd be happy to share any of these with you. The mom might say, what are you pointing at, Ashley? And Ashley goes, oatmeal. You're right, Ashley. These are all oatmeal. Oatmeal has so many different flavors. Which one would you like? Look at those open-ended questions. And um, we will make this presentation available to you. So if you want to go into our Dropbox, you can actually see them animated. One of the things we did is we had the older brother say, wow, mom, you asked Ashley questions. So nobody's being teachy-preachy here. We're just showing examples and giving an opportunity to practice. What did we find? We found that in a very low-income sample, with a very, very low sample size, because so many people did drop out or move or didn't have contact with very low numbers. Nonetheless, we got a 5.8 point increase in preschool language scale, which is a standard language measure for those in the experimental group with just seven weeks of intervention. With just seven weeks of intervention, the kids were talking more, certainly promising. And when we did this with early Head Start teachers from six classrooms, we found exactly the same thing. The, the teachers who saw our tapes maintained a high quality of language, while the others dropped off. Preliminary findings, but had us jumping up and down for joy. We used the same principles in the California Preschool Curriculum Framework, stay tuned, but we think it's actually working well. We went into classrooms and we decided to use these principles by giving young children play experiences. We read a book and then let them do something in free play, guided play, or in directed play, where we actually gave them figurines that they could play that matched what was in the book. Why play? 
because play is a perfect opportunity for conversations, for back and forth. And what happened? When they did have the kind of directed or guided play that helped them as they were playing, that allowed us to constrain the vocabulary, but at the same time, allow them some choice. The kids did better in learning those words. And in our newest research, we found something stunning. We gave words in a reading condition, in a read plus play condition, and in a play alone condition. And we found out that in the play condition, the kids did just as well as they did in the read-only condition when they had to learn vocabulary. Why? We think it's because we're offering them an opportunity for open-ended conversation. And here you can see some of those results. Look at the pre and post scores here for the experimental group zooming up in their learning of vocabulary. It's interesting that the play environments in which we use and reinforce vocabulary in context helps them master vocabulary and dialogue. We're also doing something insane, but we welcome you to join our insanity, offering more opportunities for quality talk in community settings. Here's one where we put up signs in supermarkets in underserved and in middle income environments. We just put up these signs that said things like, hi, I'm a cow, I have milk. What comes from milk? And wouldn't you know that when the signs were up, we got 33% more high quality language than we did when the signs were down? And it didn't work in the middle income environments where families were already using a lot of the high-end, uh, open-ended kind of conversations. Notice, by the way, that as I said before, this is not a class issue. This is an issue of variability that anybody can do. You just need to know that it's important to have these conversations with young children. Here, in an underserved environment, we built a new kind of bus stop. This was done with Brenna Hossinger Das and our unbelievable architect, Itai Palti. We had four activities that we put in an everyday bus stop. It was on a special lot that a church gave us for a dollar. And it was also where Martin Luther King gave one of his Freedom March speeches. If children don't have puzzles at home, then put them at the bus stop. If children don't have an opportunity to play the kinds of games that build executive fun function of attention and memory, and impulse control, then put it at the bus stop, which is what we did with a special kind of um, hopscotch game that we created. What did we get? We got more targeted spatial language with 200 and 280 people sampled, 36% increases in the kinds of behavior that build conversations in these environments. Parkopolis, ah, see if you can catch what we did here looking now at 111 parents who were asked if they would just play our game, where the dice have been changed to notice normal numbers and fractions. All of a sudden, kids could roll fractions of six and a half or three and a quarter, and they jumped the board in Spanish and English, and when they did, with the help of our wonderful, wonderful uh, postdoc Andre Bustamante, we found that the kids started using number words.
the kids started understanding fractions. It was absolutely incredible. We called the game Parkopolis. Um, the project is designed to use our science to create more conversations through playful learning cities. We're doing pilots now in Philadelphia, Seattle, Chicago, Tulsa, and Johannesburg, South Africa. And we're looking also at trapped spaces like waiting rooms, in hospitals, and in doctor's offices. Notice, if our children are only in school 20% of their waking time, we can do much more with the other 80%. What are you doing with the other 80% to help languageize a young child's environment? Finally, we created a new measure called the Quills, the Quick Interactive Language Screener. We are so thrilled we created it. In part, I think we created it because um, we didn't really like those standard tests where it was just all static objects. And we wanted to do something on a touch screen. So the young kid goes on a touch screen and we have vocabulary like nouns and also verbs, prepositions, all kinds of things in language. And we added grammar, but also we added how you learn. And we give a couple examples here. They're not easy words, but it shows a beautiful progression from three through age five. Show me the hinge or see if you can all do the example to the bottom left. The FEP is blue. Show me the blue FEP. Have you got it? Now see if you can find another FEP. That's a way of looking at how well you can learn. And our new screener comes out in English and it's in Spanish. Our result, it works. Beautiful progressions now with 673 kids across the country. Significant differences in underserved kids and more middle income kids, both in product and process. Uh, the vocabulary and grammar and process are linked across, the cro uh, across development, and you see the linkage within language, not necessarily across language. So let's go to the bottom line. If we build a strong foundation in language by using the six principles in our homes, our classrooms, and our communities, we can reduce the gap, we can measure progress, and by languageize the environment, we can help all kids reach their potential. As a starting point, I think we have to start with interventions that create environments that engage families in rich language conversations, in conversational duets. And I challenge all of us to find more ways to languageize environments because when we do, we stop talking and talking and talking and find a way to listen even to our youngest children and our youngest citizens. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen. I'm here for your questions. Um, on the left, you see Roberta Golenkoff, who has been uh, my partner for 40 years. We've done all of our research together. And there you get a better look at Ellie, who's now all grown up and just had her fourth birthday and little Jules, who's on the left. And in fact, you can also uh, follow us on the Twitter sphere at Kathy and Row One. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much, Kathy, and happy birthday, Ellie. Um, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>
This was so wonderful and so fascinating and so rich, Kathy. We have um, a number of questions. We might have time for one or two. Right. One was more of a really excited, enthusiastic comment about how great uh, this work is. And in particular, uh, one of our participants talked about having facilitated open-ended playgroups in her community for the past 15 years for parents and children ages three to five with varying economic levels. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, and um, other people have been asking about how to get your materials and we will try to get what we can and post them on our website since people know how to find that. You'll let us um, know. Yeah. And then there's one question about fathers and what studies there have been on father's role in uh, early language development. Yeah, that's such a great question. And, and so much of the literature is on mothers. Uh, mm. With fathers, it works much the same way. You know, this, this is a game about back and forth, respect for kids, having conversations. And so um, really, fathers are an important part of the mix uh, because they're really there with, with their children too. Sorry to say the research isn't as good with fathers, uh, but every time we look, we only see more to suggest that fathers are super important. Yeah, and even in, during pregnancy, in the last three months of pregnancy, if the father is present, the fetus yeah. can hear the, the father's voice and will recognize the father's voice shortly after birth. So yeah. fathers are, are um, important, and I guess I wonder why um, there is so little research, but I suppose, um, <laughs> I suppose we know the answer to that. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, the, other, the other thing I just want to ask for your um, quick thoughts about, Kathy, you know, as you talk about the variation within socioeconomic groups, um, one might raise the concern that uh, by addressing the difference in uh, opportunities for language learning, uh, we are um, in a way accepting the socioeconomic inequities of our country today and sort of putting a Band-Aid on it. And I think um, if we think more about it, your work is really about being sure that children growing up uh, with uh, less in the way of material resources will have the skills that they need to be able to make our world a more economically equitable one um, as, as they grow into um, uh, adulthood. But I wanted to hear your thoughts about how to um, face those kinds of questions when they come up. Yeah, sure. Um, you know. It's, it's, a, it's a tough call. I, I certainly hope that in everything we've done, um, we've involved the community. And I think that's really important. And what you never wanna, in, never wanna do is impose anything. The important thing is to work with people and to do things that are comfortable and culturally sensitive. And in every project that we've done, especially with the community work and with the community-based participatory research, everything was designed with the community in mind and with their sensitivities. Um, what you wanna make sure of, and I don't care what social group you are in or cultural group you are in, I have rarely met a mother who doesn't, or a father who doesn't want their child to succeed. Um, and I think it's really about that. Uh, we've entered a period where you honestly need more and more education uh, just to be able to survive with 21st century skills. And if we don't equip our children young enough with the foundations they're going to need to be able to do well, then we're kind of preparing them for failure. And, you know, we obviously have the right to do whatever we want as parents. 
But gosh, to put your children at disadvantage, at such stark disadvantage, um, is not something any of us really want. So all of my work is about helping all children thrive wherever they come from and providing fun and honest and involved and invited invitations really for everyone to be under the tent. You know, there's um, a lot of misunderstanding about exposure to more than one language early in life. And you touched briefly on yeah, dual language yeah. learning. But I wondered if um, in, in our last couple of minutes, if you could um, help us get clear on uh, some of the misunderstandings about learning uh, more than one language from the beginning of life or before the beginning. Sure, sure. Well, first of all, let me say that the norm around the world is to speak more than one language. So um, in most places, people are bilingual. And one of the largest places where they're not is, is in the US, which is quite a shame. Um, what would be the best for our children is if everybody were bilingual, <laughs> you know, if everyone learned two languages from the get-go. Our kids are so great at being able to do that. Um, one of my friends said that kids learn language the way that spiders spin webs, you know, and I think that's, that's really the case. So, um, why do it? Why do it is because, uh, kids have tremendous advantages from being bilingual. The research suggests that by code switching, by going back and forth, you have to inhibit one language to use the other language. How powerful is that? And, um, and being able to do that actually builds what they call executive function skills of attention and memory and all the kinds of things that you want our kids to be able to have later so that they will thrive. Um, as an added benefit, there's research out there suggesting that kids who have more than one language are less likely to have Alzheimer's. So why not? Right. <laughs> yeah, there's every reason to. And you talk about kids who learn two languages, but there are many children uh, who speak three or four Yes, there are. Yeah, yeah. And, and one of the um, uh, concerns is that there's a limited around, uh, amount of memory storage for language, but that just isn't the case, right? It is not the case. I mean, we just are amazing at language. It's like one of those things our species is designed to do, like kind of like breathing. Yeah, right, or spinning a web. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for uh, giving us the richness of, of your many decades of research. I, I just can't thank you enough. And there are a number of other questions. We'll try to keep track of them and we'll get back to you and uh, address what we can on our BrowsmanTouchPoints.org website. Thank you so much, Kathy. Right. Bye everyone and thank you so much for joining. Bye. Bye.